Well, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 17. Good to see you this morning. Thanks again for carving time out of your busy schedule. We have been walking through, if you weren't here last week, we're, we're journeying or taking what's called the journey to God. It's from the crossing of the Red Sea all the way to Mount Sinai um, as the, they will receive the, the Ten Commandments and we'll deal with that, the law. And, and this is that journey that we've seen. Uh, there's several lessons the Israelites unfortunately need. <laughs> uh, they haven't learned it yet. Uh, and as we looked at last week, the first of these was found in Exodus 15. And this side of the room dealt with Exodus 15. Uh, it was the situation over what? What was the problem? What were the Israelites complaining about? The water. It was bitter. In fact, later the place is called Mara, which is interesting. The first three events, the Israelites will grumble. It's over their sin and the places that the, they're named in relationship to their sin. The last thing that we're going to see today, which is in Exodus 17, the latter part, 8 through 16, it's going to be God who intervenes and it receives a name and the name is, is that of God. All right, so watch this, the, the play off the names. But Exodus 15, it's bitter water. And what was the lesson that God was trying to teach the Israelites? Bottom line, you can guess what would that be? I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, trust, trust the Lord, obey Him, all right? Uh, that's the issue. The second uh, scene that we see is we journey to Mount Sinai in 16, and that was dealing with food, right? And so quail and manna is provided. They continue to grumble and complain, and those terms are loaded. We talked about that in the Hebrew. And then when we get to Exodus 17, it's water again. This time there is no water. It's not just bitter. That is, it doesn't just have high salt content. There's no water at all. And we dealt with that, and again, it's a, a dealing with obedience, right? And who is God? He is your healer. He's your provider. And these are lessons, and in fact, we talked about 17 in particular, the early part of 17, God wants them to know Him, right? He wants them to see His glory, which He uh, brings there into the scene. So chapter 17, the latter part, there's another lesson, and and. The first three lessons that we've seen are internal, that is, they deal with them and their issues. This time it's external. Uh, the, the enemy is not within, but it's outside. So let's look at this. Turn to 17.8. It's a powerful scene. Uh, so powerful, I thought we're just going to dedicate a whole lesson just to these verses. Amalek came and attacked Israel and Rephidim. Remember, Rephidim means the place of resting, <laughs> which is so ironic because that's where they've been with the lack of water. God provides the water uh, and all that that entails. Uh, and though it's renamed, uh, Massa and Meribah means grumbling and complaining. Uh, is, it's renamed. But going back to the text in verse 9, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight against Amalek. And you're going, whoa, who is this guy? Joshua. It's the first time we've met him in the text. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's no introduction. The, the author assumes we all know who Joshua is, right? And there were a lot of Jews named Joshua at this time frame, I can assure you. All right, uh, Shua. Uh, so, uh, yeah. It means my God will save, which is most appropriate in light of what's going to happen here. 
So he takes some of the choice men, iron to iron men, and out he goes, right? Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. It's, inter- it's so different from the other scenes. What's different from what we saw earlier in our journey to Mount Sinai? What's happened in the last three scenes, the issues with water and food? Yeah, God has to provide some instruction. Here's how you're going to handle it. Not this time, Moses, boom, out he goes, right, and takes lead. Uh, text doesn't tell us, obviously, it's compressing the story. Um, but Joshua fought against Amalek, in verse 10, just as Moses had instructed him. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses would raise his hands, then Israel prevailed. And whenever he would rest his hands, then Amalek prevailed. When the hands of Moses became heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. So it looks like he's sitting on a stone is probably what's happening. Some I've seen put stones under his arms. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on there. They're sitting him down. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And so his hands were steady until the sun went down. And so Joshua destroyed Amalek and his army with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write. This is the first time in Scripture we are told to write something down. All right, So write it down. That is a memorial in the book and rehearse. Um, most scholars believe it's not that this book has already been written, but it's, it's being composed, that, that, that it's going to be down the road. Uh, and rehearse it in Joshua's hearing, or put it in his ear, literally, in the text. For I will surely wipe out the remembrance of Amalek. I mean, God is hopping mad. Did you catch that? Take them out. Deal with them. Right? From under the heavens. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. For he said, For a hand was lifted up to the throne of Yah. It's short for Yahweh or Lord. That the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In your notes, let's lay this out. You'll see the introduction there. And, of course, the immediate issue is, who are these Amalekites, the, 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 the group from Amalek? Who, who are they? You know, all of a sudden, it wasn't bad that they had the Egyptians. Now they got this nomadic group, uh, and that's what they were. They were desert raiders. Um, in your notes, I mentioned they're located in southern Israel. Uh, if you've been down to the Negev, you know it's very dry, it's parsed. We don't take a lot of groups. Uh, those of you who know I lead tours to Israel. We don't often go to the Negev. There's not a whole lot to see. <laughs> uh, but down in the Negev, down in the Sinai Peninsula, and then all the way over in Western Arabia. So uh, all the way over to Saudi Arabia, uh, most would argue. Uh, this people group are descendants of Esau, though I want to be careful um, the descendants, it would have been his uh, grandson, uh, Esau's grandson, and that's there in your notes. In fact, there is a typo, and I apologize on page one of your notes. That should be Genesis 36, not G-E-T. That should be G-E-N. So if you look for G-E-T, good luck. Um, it's in the book of Hesitations, all right? Uh, when I would give Greek assignments, I always picked it from the book of Hesitations. Uh, you don't dare give them a text from because their memory will kick in when they try to translate. So Genesis, that should be read. Uh, they're descendants of Esau. Um, though many scholars, and I think they're right, the Amalekites are probably a generic term for nomadic groups of this region now. 
All right? So not just from the land of Edom, uh, the land of Esau, um, but all this region. And certainly they were distant relatives of the Israelites, weren't they? The other thing that you need to know, and this is going to be vital to the text, they are an ongoing enemy of Israel. Doing this study, I didn't realize how many times the Amalekites raised their ugly heads in the text, but it is frequent. And a few of those I've got there in that paragraph, that opening paragraph, Saul will deal with them. David will deal with them. And, and they're mentioned all the way at the time of Hezekiah. That's the last they will appear on the scene. You won't find an Amalekite today if you go to Israel. <laughs> all right? They're, they're no more. They're gone. Like the Hittites. Yeah, Kyle. Uh, that is debated. Hundreds, several hundred thousands to millions. The text would suggest it's a million, a couple million. Uh, it's a large group. Right? Um, and, and, and that is one of the reasons many will argue the Amalekites attacked them is because uh, water is such a rare commodity. In fact, if you don't think so, it's even in the news right now, isn't it? Issue between Israel and the Palestinians, how we handle the water. <laughs> That was the whole issue with Syria. There was threats of, of damming up the water that went down into Jordan into Israel. So water is a major issue. And so that's why many believe the Amalekites were attacking the Israelites because they were infringing upon their water rights. Now, <clears throat> they were also nomadic pirates. We know that. Uh, the text tells us that elsewhere in the Old Testament. Um, uh, certainly, uh, uh, the Israelites carry with them much wealth. Remember, they ransacked, so to speak, Egypt. <laughs> they got a lot of gold with them. There's a lot of wealth in a group that size, and, and they take advantage. And in fact, the text seems to suggest that the Amalekites, um, they, they fight against them, but elsewhere we're going to see, it appears that they, they, they attacked from the rear. They, they attacked their, their weak, the stragglers behind is who they went after. All right, Kind of like wolves attacking the, the weak uh, of the pack or the herd. Well, let's look at the text even further here, and that, let's move into the. It, this shouldn't surprise us. There are several firsts. Again, we're preparing the Israelites for the Mosaic law being installed in their midst, the tabernacle, and all that that entails. And so there, there's a group of firsts. And, and the, the first of these is this is the first time the Old Testament records Israel going to war. Isn't that surprising? And it's the only group that they'll defeat, according, uh, this is there in your notes, in Hamilton, in the Pentateuch, against whom the Israelites will fight successfully. All right? So this is the first time. This will not be the last time, <laughs> will it, that the Israelites will go to war. In fact, their, their whole history, um, in fact, Jews often joke today, they tried to kill us, they didn't, let's go eat. Uh, all right, so it's kind of their, their mantra, the idea that, no, they weren't successful. And, and so there in your notes, we see this, this being the first of Israel and also the first of Joshua being mentioned. What do you know about Joshua? Help me out, you Bible scholars. What do we know about Joshua? He fit the battle of Jericho. He is one of the mil great military leaders, and, and that's obvious here, isn't it? He's put in charge. You don't put a nincompoop in charge of beating the Amalekites. Uh, Moses has carefully picked Joshua to lead this, and he's given 
really, he's given Joshua all authority to do this. And, and, and you're in complete charge. You, you pick the men, you go out to battle. I mean, because where's Moses? In the, in the valley fighting? <laughs> he's up on top of a hill. He's not down there. He has Joshua doing it. Joshua doing the dirty deed. All right. What else do we know about Joshua elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament? Yeah, he was one of the spies. He was sent out as a representative. At that point, he seemed to have spiritual eyes. He sees things that others do not in, in, a, in a wonderful way. So I would say his faith was, was strong to trust in God, as is, as is evidenced by when they return the spies, he sees opportunity that many others yep. see, which is going to be defeated by these giants. Yeah, there's spiritual insight on the part of Joshua. I mean, just read what he says going into Joshua, you know, the whole address, et cetera. Uh, can you imagine filling the shoes of Moses, right? I remember when Swindoll stepped down as president of Dallas Seminary. <laughs> I felt sorry for Mark Bailey. <laughs> you have Chuck Swindoll as your president. I mean, it's David there in the throne, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so there, there's issues there. Um, <clears throat> what else do we know about Joshua? That is correct. He had he got the opportunity what, what uh, Moses did not get to have. Uh, I mentioned in your notes elsewhere we find that he is he is identified as Moses' aid or his assistant. <clears throat> There's been much written on Jesus and his role as a discipler. When you think about it. He picks twelve. Yes, there's seventy that he sends out, but then you see this narrow circle of twelve that he works with, and even within that, he works with just primarily the three. Right, the inner circle. You see a little bit of that with Moses, don't you, as well? Issues of discipleship. Uh, <clears throat> Moses has great insight to have picked Joshua as a leader. And her, we're going to see, also plays a role here in a minute. So it's the first mention of Joshua. Again, the text is, uh, the author does not elaborate on who he is. It just assumes you know who he is. Yes. There, there's no mention of, of uh, yes. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, that was bad. There is no mention, though, of, 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 uh, of his family, so to speak, other than, yes, thank you. Yeah. Well, with that, let's move right along. Notice the text says that Moses goes up to the hill. Why do you think he goes up to the hill? What's the obvious answer? Why the hill? Yeah, it can be seen. Uh, this is a prominent, in fact, we're told on the top of the hill, uh, is even stressed later in the text <clears throat> there in verse 9. And Moses takes with him what? <clears throat> a rod. Uh, we know what the rod is. And in fact, in your notes, I mentioned this, that the rod served as a symbol of God's power and his presence. The use of the rod indicated, though ultimately Moses is dependent on the Lord. It's a symbol that we are dependent on him. Now, <clears throat> scholars have debated and pastors love to allegorize in one little sense. Um, and, and I have heard more than one sermon, oh, this is Moses praying and that we are called to pray and sometimes we need people to come alongside us when we pray. And yes, all of that's true. Uh, and the New Testament can support that. But the text never specifically states he's praying, nor does it say he gives words to God. However, <clears throat> certainly there's a dependence on the Lord, isn't there? There's a looking to Him for leadership. There's a looking for, to Him to guide. 
And so you can see that in the, in the notes I mentioned there in that larger paragraph, the last sentence, certainly one could argue that there's a clear dependence on the Lord and a call for his blessing on what is transpiring, right? I mean, that we can't deny. Uh, whether or not he's specifically praying, though, um, certainly elsewhere in the Old Testament, lifting up hands was uh, symbolic of praying, wasn't it? Uh, even today, you go to the Wailing Wall or Western Wall, uh, you'll often see Jews like this, you know, with their hands raised up, a uh, sign of, of prayer uh, to the Lord. <clears throat> well, verse 10 tells us that we, we have two uh, other men who join us. Uh, look who they are. Aaron should not surprise us. He's the, the voice box for Moses, right? We should expect that. But her, who is this fellow? Well, in Exodus 24, we're told he's one of the judges. All right, he'll take leadership in the camp. Uh, his grandson, who I believe it's his grandson, is the foreman who oversees the construction of the temple. So he was the Kirby or Tate of the day, right? Our builders in the room. Uh, building, uh, his grandson was the designer of the tabernacle, or oversaw that. I shouldn't say the designer was God, but overseeing that construction. Uh, it's interesting, and I even put this in your notes at the top of page 2, Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, says that her married Miriam, Moses' sister. We don't know. Uh, Josephus was not inspired, but he does seem to have some really interesting insight on the text from time to time uh, that was certainly oral tradition that was passed down. So it could explain why her was also in the inner circle is that he was married to dear sweet Miriam. <clears throat> Not so sweet at times, but we'll get to that. <clears throat> All right. Again, the rod is, is symbolic, and I mentioned this again in your notes. It, it, we have to remember, it's not Joseph, or Joseph, Joseph's military prowess. It's not that he picked some of the strongest and, and most bravest men among the Israelites. It's that God was in charge. And God was victorious. And the raising and lowering and how, who was prevailing when is all symbolic of that. Demonstrating God is the one who gives the victory. Right? We'll get to that in a minute. That can easily apply to us. And uh, when we try to do things on our own, it's amazing how difficult that can be. The text tells us in verse 13, what, look what it says. So jo Joshua destroyed Amalek. This term can be rendered two different ways. It can mean to crush a defeat, or it can mean to obliterate, to decimate them. I, I lean towards the latter, but you say, well, whoa, Hophet, it's the Malachites you just told us earlier appear elsewhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. But you can decimate a particular group, uh, well, an army, a division, and not wipe out the entire military force. Right, Dick? Yes, and I think that's kind of the idea. Um, but it's certainly true, and I mentioned this in your notes. In Numbers 14, one year later, the Israelites will be attacked again by the Amalekites. They're a constant thorn in the Israelite side. Yeah, Bill. Well, that's going to be the greatest offense that's raised, and we're going to look at a text here in a few minutes that the Amalekites were attempting to, to um, perform genocide. They wanted to, to not just harm and, and rob uh, the Israelites, they wanted to eliminate them. 
and that will be the charge leveled against them in the scriptures. Um, God, we got to remember, God has been very gracious with these people for centuries, and yet they have not turned to the Lord. In fact, they're very hostile to the things of the Lord. Um, and we'll see that more as we journey into the text. Well, in verse 14, we're told that, uh, again, this needs to be to the hearing of Joshua. And why do you think that would be the case? Why is Joshua singled out? Why isn't it just all the Israelites need to hear this? He's going to lead them. You're going to meet this group again. So Joshua, sit up and take nourishment because I want you to hear this. What might be another reason? Reinforcing it. Yep. What else? Good. Who led the charge? Moses or Moses or Joshua? Joshua, right? So it's kind of a, this is also, I uh, want to thank you for what you've done idea. Though I think first and foremost, it's you're going to be leading the charge and I want you to remember these things. And there's a couple texts I want us to look at. Turn to Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch. In particular, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what the Amalekites did on your way from Egypt. Yep, I know that one. All right, and there are some uh, scholars, I was reading an article by... Uh, an Israeli scholar who argues this is not referring to the event of Exodus 17, but another event. Um, how they met you along the way and cut off all your stragglers in the rear of the march when you were exhausted and tired. And watch this next phrase. Uh, Bill, you, you asked what is leveled against them. They were unafraid of God. They should have been. When we get to Jericho, uh, and, and that region, they understand. <clears throat> They've heard what happened to the Egyptians. And, and, and I can assure you the Amalekites understood who this group was and what had happened in Egypt. So when the Lord your God gives you relief from all your enemies who surround you in the land, he is giving you as an inheritance. You must wipe the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Do not forget it. Remember King Saul? Takes out the Amalekites. Right? Remember? He spared not only some prized possessions, he spared the king. And God was not happy. Because I told you back in Deuteronomy, wipe them out. They're a problem. Because they have not obeyed me. And they've sought to destroy my people. And the next reminder, and this is interesting, this is what I was referring to. Let's look at this. Psalm, yes, Dick. You won't forget the victories, but the people... We'll talk about what it means that I'll no longer remember you. It's, um, it's really... Well, I even mentioned it in your notes. Let me just... Wiping out your remembrance there, at the, it's in the middle of page two. It indicates, and I even quote from Hamilton, it refers to an even more terrible fate to lose not only one's life, but one's name and memory among your descendants. Uh, so it's, it's not that you're no longer in God's memory or even the Israelites, but your legacy as an Amalekite, your, your name, which is so vital. I mean, that's the whole problem 
with Elimelech in the book of Ruth, right? There's no son to carry on the name. That's horrific. You, you know, you open up first two verses of Ruth and you're, <gasps> what's going to happen, right? This is awful. And who would have thought a Moabite, who was not much better than a, a Malachite, well, not quite, but uh, the, yeah, so that, it's a little different, yeah, uh, of how that phrase is being used. But look, let's look at Psalm 83, and, and we'll, we'll just look at verses 1 through 7. But I want you to see this. Um, oh God, do not be silent. Do not ignore us. Do not be inactive, O oh God. For your look, your enemies are making a commotion. Those who hate you are hostile. Do you feel that way sometimes at work? Maybe even in the home. Everything around me seems to, uh, that I am a Christian. You know, I, I'm labeled as as being a fundamentalist. I'm being labeled as uh, homophobic. I'm being labeled as you fill in the blank. Right? They carefully plot against your people, make plans to harm the ones you cherish. They say, "Come on, let's annihilate them so they are no longer a nation." That's genocide. That's I.E. Nazi <laughs> Germany. Right? Yes, they have a unified strategy, form an alliance against you. It includes the tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, the Moab. I mean, look, they're thrown in together. There's the Moabites. Uh, Gebal, Ammon, and Amalek. There it is. They are guilty of wanting to perform genocide. And God says, and ultimately, the real basis of this, they hate me. They do not fear me. And that is why, boom, uh, we will take them out. And that's why when Saul disobeys and does not fulfill what God wants with the Amalekites, uh, he, he takes that very seriously. And it comes back to Exodus 17. It all starts here, right? When this people group should have welcomed and assisted, who, who knew the desert well, could assist this group, instead they attacked them. And it's ultimately because of who they worship, right? It's, it's so key. And a call to remember. And so go back to Exodus uh, 17. Let's look at this. After the enemy's been destroyed, verse 14, and by the sword, so this is a military endeavor. Uh, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book, as we said this, as a sign of remembrance of Amalek, uh, wiping them out. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar, which is so key, uh, vital. I mentioned this in your notes. It was served as a memorial not only for oneself, but also for all those who cared to observe. It was a reminder of the moment which God intervened miraculously. Uh, in the victory of Rephidim, the Lord wanted the Israelites to remember what he did for them. Whenever they should come under attack, they needed to look to him for salvation. Why should you fear eight-story walls at Jericho? I took out Egypt, I took out the Amalekites, I can take out the Canaanites, right? And, and throughout, and, and, you know, if I can just preach for a little moment, just look to how God has intervened in your life, right? Us as a group, you know, providing a job for Richard, helping Dr. Bruce and his wife. Look to those stones, <laughs> look to those events, not that you have to go build an altar in your backyard, but sometimes I wonder if that wouldn't be helpful. Um, we see these crosses on the side of roads with all the flowers commemorating or remembering someone's life that had been lost at that very location. 
we need some altars built up in our lives. This is what God did here. This is what God did here. May we not forget it, right? And unfortunately, like the Israelites, so often we find ourselves murmuring, complaining, and forgetting to trust. Well, the text becomes very difficult here, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand exactly how to render this. Um, but let me read it to you, and let's look at this. It says, Moses names the altar, the Lord is my banner. Uh, we won't sing his banner over me as love, but you know the song. Uh, it fits with this. But the, the, the question that is very difficult is the next verse. And, and, and uh, various English translations look at this differently. Uh, it's literally the hand on throne of Yah. Yah is a short abbreviation for Yahweh. But, but what does that mean? <clears throat> the first two interpretations there in your notes, the first one that you find in the King James and the New American Standard is that the Lord makes an oath. It's the Lord who has his hand on his throne as he's making this oath that I will protect you. In fact, it says, again, the whole issue is that the Amalekites, you know, they're going to be a problem, but I will protect is the idea. The, the version two is that, no, it's Moses who has his throne, hand some figuratively on the throne and he's making an oath the problem with view one and two is that's not how an oath was normally made with a hand on a throne uh, or uh, it's just we don't usually see that or raising it to the throne um, that's not seen elsewhere in the hebrew scriptures or in practice in uh, semitic time uh, semitic cultures so th those two have a little bit of difficulty it is a way to render it another way which you see in your notes is the the NIV and even um, the later edition of the NIV as well as today's NIV um, renders that hands were lifted up against the throne of God. Here it's taken more in a negative sense that the Amalekites are raising hostility towards God and God is going to intervene. It's possible. Um, the Net Bible, which is the, the version I use and I lean towards this, I, I think it's a fairly decent rendering, that is, a hand was lifted up to the throne of God. And this could be in a couple ways, that Moses was extending his hand, showing his dependence on the Lord, or that he's making a, an intercessory act, and that is he's interceding for the Israelites by raising his hands up to God. So there's that idea, and it certainly would fit with what we've seen earlier in the scene. And then finally, which is in the Revised Standard Version, uh, which is on the next page. I know you're saying, what? There's this many renderings? Yep, there is. Uh, the Revised Standard Version says, no, 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 there's a textual variant here. And so they discredit the Hebrew Masoretic text and say, no, what it's saying is this, that Ma Moses is making a war cry. In fact, in your notes, I mentioned this is a war cry, and the point is that the name of the altar, Yahweh, my standard, solemnizes the perpetual state of war that now exists between Israel and uh, Amalek. So, uh, there you are. <laughs> End of the day, God's in charge, right? End of the day is that he is on the throne. He is the one who will take out the Amalekites or anyone else who comes against the apple of his eye, his people, right? Questions or comments on that? I know it's... Uh, a couple commentators I was reading, one said, I, I don't know. <laughs> he says, I, I had never seen a commentator say that. Usually, they say, well, this view seems to be, no, he said, I have no idea. 
And I figured, well, if he can say that, then so can I. Uh, he's a very reputable Old Testament scholar. But it, it's difficult uh, either way. In your notes, I mentioned that sadly, even though there's this altar built, even though the Lord delivers this wonderful rhetoric and has it written down in the book, I mentioned in your notes, two years later, the Israelites will fear the Amalekites and forget that God is their victor, their warrior. And so they will wander for another 38 years because of lack of trust. Isn't that amazing? I think of all the heartache and problems Hophetus has dealt with if I had just trusted the Lord like I had seen his hand in the past. It's like, you know what? I wouldn't have had these problems. Um, it's easy to see that in uh, those of you who have children, right? I, I told you not to do that. If you hadn't done that, if you remembered this before, you wouldn't be there in this problem again. And my wife and I were talking. I said, you know, often that's, I'm just like that. <laughs> I'm just like my second grader who should know better. You just come do it again. Well, what's the application? So what, Hophidits? I don't have Amalekites attacking me in the rear, and, uh, and I, I don't have a rod to raise up in the sky. So how, how do I address this? Here's three things to walk away with this morning. First of all, as believers, we're part of a spiritual battle. I, I know you all know that, and I know that, but it's so easy to forget it, isn't it? Uh, you, you, you just read, just watch the news, right? There, there's a battle going on. And this incident reminds us that victory will not come because of a political party. It does not become because you belong to a particular church or how much money you give. There's, there's nothing that depends on us. Victory comes from the Lord, right? The raising of hands, it was just a way to show dependence on God and that He is in charge. Well, you know the text, but turn to Ephesians, the end of the book. Paul writes to the church, this is the who's who, the church at Ephesus. <laughs> uh, they are well grounded in doctrine. That is for sure, even the Lord recognizes that in Revelation but as, as Paul writes to them at the latter part of 6, he talks about the spiritual warfare, right? Verse 10, finally, be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in this heaven, in the heavens. There it is, all right? That's why we put on the armor of God. We could talk about all the pieces, and we won't, but you can go through that later today and, and just be reminded we are in a spiritual warfare, in a spiritual battle. Here's another. Because of that, we need to be in prayer. Uh, it is vital to the spiritual life. Moses showed that on the top of the hill, the dependence on the Lord, and as I mentioned in their prayer, is our acknowledge our absolute dependence on the one who gives the victory. Uh, prayer itself is not the power. <laughs> the power is God, right? Power is God. You know, it's interesting in this armor, every piece is listed that you would expect from uh, a Roman soldier except the shin guards, the, the right down here. And uh, most scholars say that's because this soldier is on his knees in prayer. Um. And it's interesting because as you look at the conclusion of the armor, notice what Paul says back in Ephesians 6. He says in verse 
uh, 18, with every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and this end be alert with all perseverance and requests for all the saints. Pray for me. Uh, I love being a part of a, a group of men, uh, the board for Iron to Iron. We pray for you on a regular basis. In fact, there's a group of women who pray at 1 o'clock, no, 2 o'clock, <laughs> I to I, and they pray at 2 o'clock on Mondays for this very Bible study. Be in prayer for the saints. Be in prayer for one another. Be given the message which I began to speak, right? That I may have confidence to know the mysteries of the gospel. So even Paul says, pray for me. As I'm an ambassador, I'm in, I'm in prison, right? This is his first imprisonment. He says, pray that I may be able to speak boldly. Paul, the apostle, yep, says, pray for even me. I need prayer. So praying for one another. Why? Because he understands this is a spiritual battle. No, we may not see an Amalekite come, but listen, who, who ultimately is in charge of the Amalekites? Satan. Right? They're demonically charged, attacking God's people and hating God. And then finally, I love this photo. <laughs> As believers, we can have confidence to approach the throne of the Lord for mercy and grace. Just ask Moses, Aaron, and her. Right? They came to the Lord, the Lord delivered, provided the resources. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. We're walking through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in Sunday school class. And I must confess, I will be glad when we are done. <laughs> It has been a difficult book. It's been rich, but I am tired. Uh, it is, it's, it's loaded. There's a lot to address in this book. I shouldn't say that. It's a good book, but it, it's, you know, you're not teaching the gospel of John, I will assure you. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way. You know that. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne, not in a you know, pansy way. Go before the Lord, the throne of grace, to receive, not maybe, receive it, and find grace whenever we need help. Not maybe when you might need help, but when you will need help, right? So, this morning, my prayer for you is like it was for Joshua. May he put it in your ear. <laughs> May we all be reminded today, God is on the throne. There's a quote at the bottom of page three. It's by Alan Redpath, a pastor from years gone by. He writes, Any battle for victory, power, and deliverance from ourselves and from sin, which is not based constantly upon the gazing and the beholding of the Lord Jesus, with the heart and life lifted up to him, is doomed to failure. It is. I don't care how talented and gifted you are. Uh, you're not going to win the battle against the Amalekites without the Lord going before you. All right? Questions, comments, cries of outrage, Kyle.
Thank you. That's invaluable. There's there's a reason why in Deuteronomy it says you will teach your children, you're to, especially men. We're to be passing this on, uh, the the legacy, and <clears throat> they may be a generation removed from crossing the Red Sea. They may not remember that, and they need to be reminded. This is the God who parts Red Seas. This is the God who defeats the Amalekites, and of course, God allows the Amalekites to be a little bit of a reminder until the time of Hezekiah. Father, we thank you. <clears throat> we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you, O oh God, are on the throne and you are the victorious one. And Lord, that you would go before us, that you would defend us, that uh, Lord, you would protect us. It's just overwhelming. Uh, you are so gracious. We don't deserve it. <clears throat> Lord, some in this room are facing an Amalekite and not to allegorize the text, but there's some difficulties uh, that some of these men are facing. Lord, I just pray that you'd go before them. May they be reminded that victory comes from you and only you, and the importance of prayer and lifting one another up. And in so doing, we have the beauty of coming to your throne room, not sheepishly, not concerned that you're going to bring up past sin, but Lord, confidently knowing that you are a God who forgives, you're a God who who grants mercy and grace, and we just thank you. Be with these men today. Watch over them. Protect them, Lord. And uh, Lord, we, we again, we just praise your name, for indeed you are our banner, and we rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.